0: I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Putting More Money in Your Pocket with a Diversified No-Till Operation, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. In this episode, we hear from longtime Kenton, Ohio, no-tiller, Jan Lehman, who spoke at the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference. In this program, he shares the economic payoffs he's seen as a result of diversifying his farm operations. He'll discuss his custom excavation, tiling, and fertilizer application business, how he makes extra cash and gets the inside scoop on other local opportunities through his work as an auctioneer, how he really started making money when he built a grain setup and quit hauling out of the field, and more. Now here's Jan.
1: I'm very honored and humbled to be here. I'm not not a professional speaker by any means. I tell people I'm a farmer first. That's kind of the situation, so I'm thrilled to be here. Maybe I can shed a little light and help you try to make some more money. That's our location, that's where we're at, 75 or 80 miles straight south of Toledo, Ohio, or 100 miles east of Fort Wayne, or or, uh, 50, 60 miles northwest of Columbus. Uh, We run the gamut of all kinds of soils, from flat and black and good to stuff that's on end. Yellow, nasty, it's just slightly better than concrete. That's our current farm map. Uh, that shows some new ground we've picked up. As of today, we'd be 52 or 300 for next year. You hear folks talk about having to fight dad to change. Well, I didn't have that problem. I'm 57, my dad would be 100. So uh, I'm nine years younger than my closest brother. I grew up almost as an only child. My dad died of cancer when I was a senior in high school. So I didn't have that resistance. I farmed with an older brother to start with, the oldest one, but I think he would probably go along with what we're doing. He was a dairyman when I was a little kid. I don't remember milking cows, but they had in the 60s, they would moldboard plow, but they had a 4010 John Deere with a four row machine on it that had a a cultivator sweep in the front and then a set of curved disks and about four rotary hoe wheels. And had a bridge hitch that went under it, and they pulled a 494A planter behind it. And they could go into plowed ground in the spring and plant. So they were kind of progressive for their day. So uh, we've been continuous, no-till, 100% since 93, so about 25 years. I got into that because of a labor issue. Uh, I was by myself and we were starting to grow kind of rapidly. My dad never farmed more about four or 500 acres. And so we were starting to grow rapidly and we didn't have labor force. So that's the reason we got off the no-till. In fact, I had, I had all the big tillage equipment. I had a Steiger and a and big field cultivator and I traded my Steiger and field cultivator on the first 750 drill we bought. Uh, we make our living farming. I've been a licensed auctioneer since 1989. I added a real estate license in 2006 simply to be able to sell real estate at auction. I don't want to list houses, I don't want to show houses, I don't want to mess with that. Matt and Jenny Hahn. Jenny's my daughter, and we formed another partnership in uh, 16, I think, or 13, 14. That's what the Lynn Valley Ag Service is, uh, and then they're selling Ebert Seeds and chemistry as well. There's kind of our business structure. We were sole proprietors up until 2013. I went to TPAP, if some of you folks have heard of that, and that was Danny Kleinfelder's uh, mid-career business boot camp, I guess. And they convinced us we needed to be into an entity. I'm going to say something that's real pertinent right now. I didn't think it would be when we did it. If you look, it says LLP. That's a general partnership with limited liability. 99% of the people you see are, are LLCs. Danny Kleinfelder wrote an article in DTN about that time, and I didn't think it was going to be pertinent, but the only entity that FSA recognizes for multiple payment limits is a general partnership. An LLC gets one. A general partnership gets as many limits as there are partners in proportion to their percentage ownership. So my wife and I had been individuals up until then, and we had split it because of the old LDP days. I thought, ah, we won't ever need that payment limitation again, that money's going away. Until we got our Trump City here the other day, and we would have maxed out. We had enough acres of beans that, in fact, we're almost going to max out twice. So that, they picked a good year to because if we had the highest bean yields we've ever had, they picked a good year to add a subs- subsidy to them. So we're a general partnership with limited liability. All of our farming practices are in that. The JCL Family Farms is an LLC. That's our land ownership company. Uh, we were trying to get some liability protection. Those are some older pictures of our, our tile equipment. Actually, that came about my brother wanted to buy the tile plow. And we were going to do enough custom work to pay for our tile on our ground. We've done that. The tiling business, uh, we don't do a lot of custom work. We do some. Uh, we're not even getting a lot of our own done. We gave up growing wheat for Lent about 25 years ago. <laughs> I, tell, I tell people I could no longer stand the prosperity of it. So <laughs> I have a good friend, my fertilizer salesman, that calls it poverty grass. Uh, So we don't grow wheat, we grow corn and soybeans and it's getting as we farm more all the time and as my work crew ages and as I age it's getting harder and harder to get tile done in a corn soybean rotation. We've done a couple of things if it's not a lot of acres we have gone in and planted everything else but the one we want to tile, stop, tile it, work it down, plant it late. We've had a little success doing that. We've had a little success with open falls. Obviously this fall was not one of them. We still have a little bit of corn in the field. So this fall was not one of them. In fact, we got a custom job that we finally just had to unhook that machine and (laughs) put it in the shed because we had to have that tractor on a grain cart. There's a tool we bought, uh, 2011 I believe, but that is a chain three-point hitch trencher. And it's quite a machine. They make a couple different sizes. That's the bigger one. Well, they make a bigger one now, a great big. But that one is uh, capable of digging six feet deep and we can put in 15 inch tile with it. We don't have a boot that big. We've put in 12 inch with it before. Uh, The big challenge is it takes a lot of tractor to lift it. It's really heavy. It doesn't take so awful much to run it. But it's 13 or 14,000 pounds and way back behind you so that's an 8370 deer, so it's a pretty big tractor. Probably 325 at the PTO, but it's also got all the front weights we can get on it, and the inside front tires are filled with liquid, and it's still pretty light. We got in, we backed into a business 15 years ago, I suppose. We bought a farm right adjacent to our home farm, and it was an old dairy farm, and that, and that old guy's 100 would have been, and. 188, 200 acres in it, but we bought 188, and it was in about 15 fields. And the fence row's 60 feet tall and 60 feet wide. And he was one of these guys that when he, when the trees got up in the hot wire fence, he just put the hot wire inside the trees and just kept them, I, I went through about three or four fences. So I got an estimate from a man, a good friend, or a good friend's dad, who just passed away and and he just had bulldozers and was a farmer on the other side of town and I I said give me an estimate on clearing those ventros out and he studied it and we went and looked at it and he studied and he said $15,000 you better figure 20 and if I as you and a young guy go buy a bulldozer then that's the rest of the story so we bought a bulldozer and then we bought a traco, and then we bought a detached to haul the traco, and then you know so over a period of time and he was correct we gave $25,000 for the dozer and put a little bit of money in it, got the, got the fence rows cleared, and still got the dozer. We're on the second one now. So what that's really allowed us to do, we've bought several farms and rented more than one. In lieu of high rent, we'll pay a reasonable rent, and we clear, clear the fence rows, clean them up at no charge to them. We've done the same thing with some tile. We don't get crazy on that, but if they'll buy the tile, we'll put it in. So it's kind of a shared thing. It's helped us gain. It's helped us grow. And it's helped us develop a reputation in the community. So then that led to another one. We farm a bunch of rolling ground. So we got started building grass waterways. So we first built them with a bulldozer, and then we had a a power takeoff, uh Liebrek ditcher, a slinger, eh, it works, but it was an issue with that, sometimes you don't want the dirt right beside you, you want the dirt somewhere else. So several years ago we bought a pull-type pan, the the 4055 behind it's actually pulling a gator and working the sides down, but, so we turned that into a business that turns a fair amount of money. Uh, That's our slow time of year is the last half of July to the 1st of September. So we developed a rapport with the NRCS. It's helped us rent some farms again. I'll build a waterway for you at no cost, out of pocket. If we get 90% cost share on it, I'll eat to 10%. And we get paid for our time and they got a waterway. Now, the new farm bill I'm hearing is only going to be a 50% cost share, so that may or may not work going forward. I don't know. I haven't read and delved into the new farm bill enough to to be able to answer that. But that backed into a business this year was a bear. In western Ohio, where we are, we were wet from – we had a good planting season, and then it turned wet. And so even in July, we started – I don't know – 10th of July on waterways and the first waterway we built ran water three times before we got it built. And so we fought that all summer. We had about 10 or 12 waterways to build. We got three we did not get built. Uh, We had to put extensions on them. We finished seeding the last one the last day of September and the third day of October got two and a half inches of rain in 30 minutes. And my NRCS guy said, I knew I was in trouble. That dumps right into the side of the river. He said, I knew I was in trouble when I came across the bridge and saw straw floating down the river. So it washed it out. We'll have to redo it. So that's that's been a pretty good business. I've been a licensed auctioneer since 1989. I was on a fair board for 20 years, and one of the other auctioneers was on the fair board at the same time, and he offered to sponsor me as a, you have to apprentice. And he offered to sponsor me, so... I I did that. Uh, added a real estate license so we could sell. So I guess what I'm trying to do is tell people to use your talents. You know, it's no secret, times are tough now. So anything we can do to generate some more revenue, we want to do. And I generally tell folks if it's remotely legal and it'll turn a dollar, I'm interested. You know, I just assume it'd be legal. but. <laughs> but if it's remotely legal, we'll talk about it.
0: We'll come back to Jan in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet your harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at Yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to the conversation with Jan.
1: We have a couple annual auctions, one's the consignment sale, so that auctioneer that sponsored me and I, we started a consignment sale in our county fairgrounds that benefits the fair, the fair board, and it's turned into a monster that you can't stop, but it's big. That's a big social event of the year. Junior fair livestock sale, we do a couple of them. Uh, Household sales are a pain in the neck, I just do not do them, in fact, I just about won't do them now unless it's someone I know or or they allow me to sell real estate at the same time. I can't make any money out of a, a household sale that's two or three thousand dollars gross. By the time the family gets the antiques that they want, I get fifteen percent of that. So you do the math on that. Three or four hundred bucks, and I got to split it four or five ways. Nah, I'm, I'm not that hungry anymore. However, we did. If any of you get any of you get uh, an AgWeb email every day, I do. Look on today's. Uh, Machinery Pete's got a, a blurb in there about strong auction sales in Ohio. That's an auction sale we did Saturday for a good friend that was retiring, and his Case IH red stuff. But 1.1 million dollars, almost the the gross of the sale was. So that's pretty good. We made a year's wages in a day there. We got more than a day in it. But some of the things that you know, like I said about that bulldozer. Getting us some opportunities on an on an overgrown farm or building those waterways The auction business has done the same thing when a guy gets ready to quit or retire. Who's one of the first people he goes and sees? Usually the auctioneer so I get advanced notice sometimes when folks are gonna You know and we've rented some farms or whatever. We've developed a policy years ago We don't go try to rent farms from anybody else most of them come to us we own about a fourth of what we farm and the rest of it's rented and most of it has come to us and so if if you're farming and I'm not going to come try to rent it but if you're going to quit and it's going to be up for grabs then we're interested so we've had some opportunities there we had one a year ago if you looked at that map there was a piece of ground or a chunk of ground in a different county and that fellow came to see me about selling his farms at auction and before we got done we talked him out of selling his farms at auction and renting them and selling his machinery instead and we rented 750 acres in one bite. So there's been some opportunities there, but we do sell some real estate at auction. That's been a good thing. I do about all the sheriff sales in our county and so there are not very many weeks I'm not doing an auction gig. The Lynn Valley Ag Service, that's the one we formed with my kids. Or my kid and my son-in-law, and uh, there's a reason that the percentages are the way they are. I did have a sharp enough attorney there that you're always concerned about. I'm not concerned about me and my wife getting divorced. We've had too much time in there now to worry about it. But that son-in-law had been married once before, and so you're trying to divorce-proof that next generation. Because this was our equipment going into that. Well, if you look, daughter and mom and dad own 60%. So that was kind of by design. And so that came about, we were hiring or spreading done. And we'll get to the, to the variable rate side of it, but the co-ops were charging us to variable rate and charging extra to variable rate. And that always did irritate me. I thought, now, wait a minute. You know, they talk about, oh, the equipment's expensive, well, alright, but another $20,000 on a $200,000 machine, big deal. You know, that's about what the multiplier cost extra. Well, what really tore it one day was before we got as concerned about the four R's on, on fertilizer application, and we're not in the Lake Erie watershed, we're right at the edge of it. That 20 acres of corn I got left is in the Lake Erie watershed. Everything else I farm goes to the Gulf. But, it's a matter of time, until that all comes. We're under a microscope and it's coming fast and we'd better get control and we'd better not be spreading fertilizer on frozen ground. But they were, they were spreading and they had a little bit of snow. And when I got to looking, they're turning around the middle field. How come you didn't spread that one in? Well the map didn't call for anything on that end so we turned around the middle field. Hmm. Huh. So there's like 80 acres in there, and you spread about 40 of it, but I got charged 80 acres application. Uh That's when we bought our own machine. So that's kind of what we did there. This ties in with with labor. I'll be the first one to, to tell you labor is a challenge. Labor is a pain, but they're a necessary evil. I don't farm with much family. We're mostly employees. And so you know we we work eight to five, five days a week, other than when we're in the field. And you have to be you have to be cognizant of that. And if we work Sundays, we work a short day so that they get to see home in the daylight, and they get a they get to see their families and and do some things. If somebody's got a kid in a ball game, if we can at all accommodate them, we let them. And it comes back to just being able to get along and. I couldn't deal with part-time employees, I couldn't deal with retraining somebody every three or four months. So we chose to go to full-time employees and find something for them to do. So that's how we backed into that business. I was irritated with the with the variable rate charge. So we mostly spread the custom work they do is mostly lime and gypsum. They do spread a little fertilizer once in a while custom, but What they really do is they do all of our spreading. So my farm pays the kids business, and it was a way for me to force a little money into them, and so I'm still paying myself, though. They also then added a a partnership with Ebert's Field Seeds out of Covington, and they offer seeds, cover crop seeds as well, and chemicals, mostly generics, I'm the general manager. My wife is the CFO. She, I, I, I tell people I married the right one and she came from a farm credit background. She was a loan officer at federal land bank years ago and then went to production credit, but this was before all the mergers and so on. So we got one guy that's been with me 22 years. He's the sprayer operator and he's kind of the operations guy, sees that a lot of it gets done. He's the, who's the one that does it if I don't, but we've got three full-time truck drivers. My daughter works in the office full-time, my wife works in the office full-time. Wife's also, we got four grandkids now, so she's a grandma part of the time. And that was a long way to get to there, but I said we we didn't really want that part-time and have to start over and train people all the time, and and we're just in an area where uh, we don't, we don't have good luck with that. So most of our employees have come to us, we haven't, gone out looking for them uh, so we were trying to get to where we had a, a capable competent team uh, we have enough grain storage Well, we did until this year we added enough acres this year we, we have enough storage at home to hold everything so we store everything we hold nothing to town at harvest and so that leads to a lot of trucking and I did a little adding the other day, and since the first of October, we've handled, because we moved 150,000 to another location that we rented some space, we've moved about 850,000 bushels of grain in addition to harvesting, between what we've brought in and what we've taken out, and that's, you know, three or four trucks. So any that worked out with a rotten, wet fall. Anytime it wasn't fit to be in the combine, you're in a truck. And I always tell people you want to shoot big bullets or look for the low-hanging fruit, or whatever. How are we gonna make some more money? So, the last 20 years we quit thinking like a farmer selling grain, and we started thinking like an elevator selling grain. And you make grain marketing decisions based on basis. Now this is all dependent on having grain storage. If you're hauling out of the field to the local co-op, you're not gonna be able to do this. That's probably when we started making money farming, was when we built a grain setup and quit hauling out of the field. We never made any farm, never made any real money until we quit hauling out of the field. Year after year after year after year, our basis is 30, 40 under at harvest always. It'll almost always get at least an option and maybe that 10, 12, 15 over. If you can do that, that's a 40 to 50 cent gain every year with the board price doing nothing. So, you know... What's it cost to build a grain setup from the scratch? Oh, I can tell you. But <laughs> probably dryer and concrete and legs and everything about three dollars a bushel. But if you gained fifty cents every year, in six years you got your money back. And it ain't much else we do that makes money that fast. Not much. So, but takes a lot of labor, takes a lot of trucks, you handle all that grain two or three times, you know, my help all went home over Christmas weekend. We still had 500 acres of field, uh, corn in the field on Christmas Day. They all went home on Friday and didn't come back till Wednesday. I worked the whole five days. You know, I, I was transferring corn Christmas Day. So, you know, somebody's got to do that. So you got to have the labor, you got to have the, and you got to have the access to the market. If you're out in the middle of nowhere where you don't have those access, it's tougher. It's tougher. Trucks are a necessary evil. I tell people, I said, you ought to have half a dozen trucks. I said, something broke down on one of them all the time. Every day, and my truck garage guy says, I hear that every day, and I said it's the truth. I don't care, I get one out of the shop and I put another in So it's just, that's trucks. I deal with a grain marketer out of Urbana that I've dealt with for 25 years, and that's what he really does. He he brokers grain deals between elevators, Between end users, between farmers, so he's liable to put me to more farmers, and you know we may throw an elevator a quarter million bushel package, and then but he dealt with one person, and they they like that, and it's silly how much they'll vary off their posted bid. It's really silly. Guys want to go to an elevator and offer them five thousand or two thousand bushel and expect them to push twenty cents. They ain't gonna. But if you offer them 100,000 bushel, they talk usually. We'll sell stuff and people will say, well, you sold corn to so-and-so. He said, what'd you get for it? 12 over. I didn't price it. I just put a basis contract on and then we put pricing orders back against it. I missed one by a penny this year. I would have had some 450 corn and I got just a little bit. I should have settled for 449. That 12 over That 12-over contract, we had an order at 438, and corn got to 437. So, note to self, I'm going to change mine. I'm going to start to put trailing stops on there. So, if I got an order 10 or 15 higher, I'm going to put an order 5 lower too. So, if I don't get her going this way, I'm going to get her on the way back down. Because then you get that, and then you think, ah, it'll go back up. Well, it doesn't. It hadn't yet. So, there's some contracts that we've had on, and we do these. We've got one on now for next year. We tend to do them a year out, and we will throw a package at, we use this feed manufacturer right here, Comball, and they're about, they're 50 minutes from us on a dry road with a truck, but it's only about 35 mile maybe. But we throw them a package of December, January, February, and March versus the March. We had it sold at 12 over this year. We did get some 430 corn. But they're feeding hogs, they got to have corn every day. Uh, We also, they called me and wanted to do this. They wanted corn in May and June. Typically, we try to have our corn out of there by planting time because nobody wants to sweep bins when it's hot. But we decided to do that. That's 15 over the July. So, but my point in all this, look at the difference. This one is on the west side of Lima, Ohio, which is 30 miles away. This one's on the east side of Lima, which is 25 miles away. This one is at Iber Sandusky, Ohio, which is 35, 40 mile northeast of us. This one is at uh, Smithfield Grain, and that's the Smithfield that owns the hogs. And uh, that's at Harpster, Ohio, and so that's not far from them. And that's gonna go on rail and go to the Carolinas to feed their hogs down there is where that's gonna go. And then if you get successful farming, Smithfield's the largest sow owner in the United States, over a million sows. Over a million sows. This combo was in that top 40. They got 25,000. And then this pellet plant just doubled. It's at Marion, Ohio, which is 30 miles east of us. They just doubled. They're now using a million a week. That's a hell of a bunch of corn, boys. That's 150,000 a day. And they only unload five days a week and they grind seven days a week. (laughs) But they're burning 150,000 bushels a day in counties that raise 10 or 12 million bushels of corn. They need 55 to 60 million bushels of corn a year. So they're going to be very aggressive going forward. They've been half that, and they just got that open in November. But here's my point. On a given day, you want to make money easily if you've got grain storage from two under to 30 under a 28 cent spread for the basically the same distance in two different directions it's a th- it's a 30 mile haul either way and that was their posted price that wasn't what you could have negotiated with them on a big sale and there this is versus the March this one's versus the May same thing so this is this is uh, April delivery 30 under the May and they're their option So a 30 cent difference in price. And that's the difference between making her and not making her. Same again down here. You know, they're 27 under. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a second. They're 27 under for June here. We're 15 over. That's 42 cents. Uh, I don't know how you make money any easier than that than to just pay attention to what you're doing marketing. We have not grown non-GMO corn. We've grown a lot of non-GMO beans. We've not grown non-GMO corn for a long time. We grew 1,000 acres of it this year. Cargill comes to us with a program. Here's where I get irritated. Comes to us with a program. They want to pay 45 cents over their posted price. 45 over their posted price. Well that's a pretty good premium. And it's 40 bucks an acre cheaper to grow on the seed. Ish. You know you're talking 125 dollar seed versus 200 or 225 dollar seed. 2.3 to the unit. So they're 45 over their posted price. Well their posted price is pretty good. Till now. And then you look at this. So they're 45 over, 30 under. So that translates to 15 over. For non GMO, and I got to be 97% pure, got to go through all the testings, and I got to go clear through Lima, Ohio, which has got about 50 stoplights, and it's a pain in the neck to get there. My truckers are not going to be happy with me. And I got a 15 over to these guys, and don't have to meet anything other than bomb tests. So, Note to self, note to everybody. If you're gonna grow non-GMOs, I think there's a lot of opportunity in there. Absolutely no issue with us growing it. We didn't have a bit of trouble. We didn't have any issue. We haven't forgot how to kill weeds with conventional chemistry. No problem growing it. Yielded every bit as good as our smart stacks and better. In fact, our highest yielding farm this year was a new farm that we picked up and it was a non-GMO. And it was our highest yielding farm. Note to self, if you're gonna grow non-GMOs, read the fine print in the contracts, figure out, because we grew some beans for one that was over a Cargill plant elsewhere, and they did the same thing there. Their basis dropped about 50 cents, so our premium evaporated. We'll still get a premium on this non-GMO, but note to self, we've grown others. We are going to, going forward, If we're going to grow anything for a contract, it's going to be versus the board, it's not going to be versus local basis because they play too many games with local basis. So if it's versus, even if it's less. You know, I grow some seed beans that are, that are versus the Chicago board, and it's less of a premium than what he wanted to pay, but he was tied to Cargill. And so I got that stupid basis game out of there and I'll take a less premium, but I know I can look at the Chicago Board and add my premium to it and know what we got. I guess the point of my whole thing was to try to diversify and to try to, try to put some more money in your pocket. You all got some sort of skills. I mean, if you're, if you're uh, capable of being a township trustee, if you're capable of driving a school bus, I mean, we're going to have to survive till things change again. So there's some ways that you can generate some revenue that aren't too painful. Uh, Some of it's just picking that low hanging fruit. Look into non-GMO contracts. Uh, There again, you have to be cautious what you're doing. You gotta be able to, probably gotta have your own sprayer and be able to do your own spraying. But uh, there's ways to do this and and pick some money without without having to go out on a limb and, and go crazy on it. Uh, run your stuff through a shop, you know, we've, the last combine we bought was five years ago. You know, we we keep, and we were trading about every year. So you know, we're running stuff through a shop, we're trying to utilize those employees more. I have a couple that are really good shop guys, I have a couple that are really good truck guys, and you get the right people in the right seat on the bus. I think there's ways to, to put more money in your pocket without going crazy. And uh, it'll, it'll help the bottom line a bunch.
0: Thanks to Jan Lehman for sharing his creative strategies for building revenue with his diversified no-till operation. To listen to more podcasts about successful no-till strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlach at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Jan Lehman and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.